if you can use your home as a starting point for understanding the world and realizing that the guy who makes the great food for you when you go out to eat was born in Zacatecas, you know, and speaks, you know, speaks three languages, then as a traveler, when you leave your home, you'll, you'll, you're more likely to be able to see the nuances in the place and really appreciate what the obvious stories are versus what the settler stories are and maybe whose stories aren't being told. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is my latest Vagabonding audio companion episode where I dig deeper into the themes I explored in my book, Vagabonding. I take these episodes from my appearances on other people's podcasts, or in this case, it's taken from an Instagram live conversation I had earlier this summer with my old buddy, Ernest White II, whose TV show Fly Brother is now in its second season on PBS, as well as Create TV and international streaming services. Ernest last appeared on this podcast way back in season one, episode two, five years ago. His TV show is about friendship and personal connection around the world. It has a lot in common with the Vagabonding ethos, and as it happens, Ernest is going to moderate the launch of my new book, The Vagabond's Way, later this year on October 4th. Because this will be a virtual event sponsored by Northern California's iconic travel bookseller book Passage, you all are invited to join us and participate in that conversation. I'll have more information on that event in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Today's podcast conversation might be something of a taster for the many of the topics we'll cover when we launch my new book in October. We talk about things like giving yourself permission to take time off and travel in life, and how interacting with your own hometown can prepare you to explore faraway places. This topic comes up a lot because in the new season of Ernest's TV show, my wife Kiki and I host Ernest in our corner of Kansas. If you watch the Kansas episode of Fly Brother, you'll see that Ernest has created something of a video essay that uses home and love and connection to tell a story about the American heartland. We discuss the importance of love and connection in this conversation. We also talk about how diverse seemingly provincial places like Kansas can be, and how as travelers and travel writers, we should always look for stories that go beyond the stereotypical and the obvious. I might also point out that this fall, Ernest is launching a Fly Brother membership community that includes access to his travel network, as well as a chance to travel with him while he films his TV episodes worldwide. More on the Fly Brother membership community in my show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. A reminder that this was originally recorded using our smartphones on Instagram Live, so the audio isn't as clear as a normal podcast episode. But audio specifications notwithstanding, we do cover some fascinating ground. We start by talking about how the places we grew up in and come back to can inform our experience of the more distant places we go as travelers. Let's listen in. Hey, Ralph Potts, how are you today? Hey, good to see you, Ernest. With you having traveled so much in your life in so many places, why does Kansas still remain so powerful and, uh, and important to you? Well, it's where I grew up, it's where I have family. It's, it's where I met my wife, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I think travel is about a relationship with place, you know? And I think coming from, from, uh, from Kansas, it's sort of the middle of nowhere. People aren't really sure what's there. They have a lot of stereotypes about it. And so I always think I, I use Kansas as a point of reference. You know, people don't always understand Kansas. They don't, like, what am I missing here? You know, there's, there's places that are obviously beautiful. Um, sure. And those are pretty easy to find. You can go to the Eiffel Tower, right? But what is the, what's happening in the 18th arrondissement of Paris, right? What's happening there? So I think Kansas has helped me as a traveler to see places that aren't obviously 
uh, mm. destinations. And then the funny thing is that you visited me here before I had a wife. And you're like, well, let's talk about love, you know, because I love love. And I'm like, well, I'm a traveler, you know, I'll probably just wander the earth and be happy with that. Then like a year later, I met my wife here in Kansas. She's also a global person. She's lived in London. She's lived in Berlin. She's worked in, uh, as an actress in Los Angeles and New York. But during the pandemic, I met her here. And so it's almost as if we were creating your Kansas episode, Ernest, because we had talked about love. We talked about how I'm sorry to say the cliche, I apologize to Kansas people, but there's no place like home. It's true. Um, and then just when I told Ernest that uh, that love was maybe something that wasn't going to be central to my life, I met my my true love where? In Kansas. Rolf, I am, I'm over here just with goosebumps and like a full heart, man. I love, love, love our story. Uh, I love your story about finding love at home and the fact that, yes, you were cynical and I was, you know, kind of beating my head against a wall in some sense saying no you have to love and keep your heart open and look at what happened ah it's such it's an amazing experience and uh, i'm happy that we were able to tell that story on the episode and uh, that people could really see the energy between you two you know and and that kansas is a place that a, a, a space that's uh, a container for that love. And so it took you a while to get me to come visit you in Kansas. Like you'd been yeah. picking it, so, you know, and I was just like, mm, I, I've flown over it. Uh, yeah. I, like, you and everybody in America. But yeah. you came, Ernest, you came, and I respect that. Not everybody comes. I invite a lot of people, but not everybody comes. No, thank you, man. And honestly, like it was eye opening for me. One, just how multicultural it was, mm. or it is, and mm. uh, you know that's something that with your 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 parents being teachers, you know, obviously engaging with different communities, uh, and then you kind of having that in your blood uh, as someone who just is open uh, to to the world that exists there in Kansas. Tell us more about kind of those different communities as you've related to them and uh, then how we were able to engage them for the episode. Yeah, well, when we, I took you to my, my high school, Wichita North, when you came to Wichita the first time, yes. and it was like, it, it wasn't this way when I was younger. It was maybe 30% Latino. It's now like 70% Latino. Mm. And you don't think of Kansas as being having that sort of multicultural specificity, but there's actually grain elevators with Latino murals on them now, with Mexican-American celebration murals. The biggest hand-painted mural in the world is in Wichita. And then I set you up for the episode with my friend Rod Pukawachit. That's right. A great Native American uh, filmmaker um, who doesn't just make you know, shows about Native people on horses, like the stereotype, but sure. it's about urban Native people. And he made, he's made a na Native zombie movie, for example. And so I sort of introduced him as your guide to Wichita uh, for the episode, which was fun to see him there. And just fun to see him get exposure because he, he's a talented filmmaker, but he didn't leave Wichita to make his films. He stayed in Kansas and he's making his films as a Native American Kansas filmmaker. And I really respected that. And another, another person I set you up was Phil Dixon, um, uh, baseball historian, uh, really affiliated with the Negro Leagues uh, Baseball Museum, which is on the Missouri side. But Phil lives on the Kansas side and is very proud of being a Kansan. And it occurs to me, Ernest, this is an accident, but I'm wearing my Kansas City Monarchs shirt today. Hey. You know, the, the great Negro Leagues team, um, yes. which brought a lot of pride to Kansas. Like, even if you were a white person in the 1920s, if you wanted to see good baseball, it was black baseball in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And I... And Phil Dixon is such a great segment of that episode. He's so um, versed in the ways of black baseball, not just nationwide, but in sure. his own neighborhood and in Kansas in general. So that was fun to see.
But both Rod and Phil are amazing storytellers and it's such an honor and pleasure and privilege to be able to talk to them. Rod, you know, of course, being our guide in Wichita and talking to us about uh, not only the, the stories that have always existed since time immemorial, but his ability to engage with newer audiences and really kind of exploring uh, Native American stories in ways that hadn't been explored in film, uh, uh, at least on a, a, a broad level up to now. And then Mr. Phil Dixon, who took us into a couple of amazing spots in KCK, Kansas City, Kansas, and uh, really took us back uh, from th through the, the heyday of uh, just sport in Kansas, black sport in Kansas, not only with baseball, but also boxing and, and all of the mm. different things that, uh, that one could, could experience. We uh, started in Kansas City, Kansas. We went down to, to Wichita and then up to Salina in central Kansas, uh, where you are. What parts of the state uh, have we missed in the episode? Well, I was just thinking about uh, Black America in Kansas. The, I was just reading about the Gordon Parks Museum. Like the great Renaissance man Gordon Parks is a Kansan. Kansas was not always kind to him, but he represented Kansas so well. Mm. And, you know, part of my Kansas pride is like, look, this is where Gordon Parks came from. You know, it's not just Dwight Eisenhower and Amelia Earhart, but this is Gordon Parks' home. And that guy was the first Black photographer for Life magazine. Mm -hmm. um, but he also, he made Shaft, man. He made The Learning Tree. He He... But he was also a musician. Like, you couldn't find a more keen Renaissance man from uh, the 20th century. And he's a Kansas guy, too. And so um, that's on the very eastern edge of the state towards, uh, towards on the Missouri border. Uh, but as you go west, I'll just stay in the, in the uh, African-American history vibe. There's a town called Nicodemus when they're giving out land to settlers in the 1870s. They gave a land to freed slaves. African-American settlers founded the town of Nicodemus, Kansas. And I tell you what, uh, you know, you talk about the importance of real estate. There's a huge black middle class in this part of the country that traces their roots back to Nicodemus, Kansas. The fact mm. that their great grandfathers owned land, you know, it wasn't, they didn't, get good, they didn't give them good land in Kansas. They gave them dry land, but it was mm -hmm. theirs. And so there's a huge, and this counts, this is a part of American history. There's a huge part of the Black middle class in Denver, Wichita, Kansas City, Omaha, who can trace their ancestors back to these dirt farmers in the 1870s. And that's way out west. That's further west than you came during your visit. Um, and so border to border, it's, it's always been a multicultural state. And that's something that Phil Dixon talked about in your episode. Yes. Just the idea that once you cross the Kansas River, if you, if you were enslaved in the 19th century, then you were free by the time you got to Kansas. And that has influence some very specific things uh, in American history in Kansas. Obviously, there's more than black history in Kansas, but just with that as uh, an example, from Gordon P Parks out east to Nicodemus, Kansas out west, uh, it's been a part of the American fabric, you know. Uh, sure. And I could, I mean, that's not even mentioning Dodge City in the Wild West, but uh, those are just some, some examples of the richness of this state that nobody goes to. No, but you know what is always impressive to me, Rolf, is just your absolute wealth and depth and breadth of knowledge about Kansas history. And I mean, it is supremely inclusive. Like you, you know the facts, you know the communities, you know, you know what's gone on there, and 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 how it's kind of manifesting now, and 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 even where it's heading. And I really always, I always appreciate that because you know you don't get that from most people. Uh, just a, 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 a such a deep and, and abiding understanding of where they're from.
And so looking at that, where where is Kansas going, uh, do you think, in terms of just development and 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 I don't even know what to say. Like, where is Kansas headed to you as far as you're it, it's hard to say because because um, just America is a weird place right now. You know, mm-hmm. that, wh- where is any place headed? Um, but I think that we live in an era when it's possible to be global and to live in Kansas. You know, mm-hmm. my wife, who I met during the pandemic, speaks German and has cousins in Norway and was trained in drama school in London. But she's she loves Kansas. She's very much of Kansas. And so I think that um, maybe places can inform us, but like the, the thermostat of a place can often be connected to other places that you aren't, you can be based in a place like Kansas or in a place like Jacksonville or in a place like uh, Idaho or other places and be connected to other parts of the world in, the, in a place that's historically unique right now. And so, in fact, I just, um, just this morning, I was in uh, Lindsborg, Kansas, which you know, it's the Swedish American town. You can appreciate the Swedish side of that. Um, Done a study abroad there in Sweden, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, and it's and it's funny that like the immigrant community in this part of the state in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties was Swedish. Now, and but they're also from Varmland, from like the Norwegian side of Sweden. Mm. Now the immigrants are more tend to be Mexican. Not all of them, but they're from uh, Zacatecas. They're from a very specific part of Mexico. And I think if you can use your home as a starting point for understanding the world and realizing that the guy who makes the great food for you when you go out to eat was born in Zacatecas, you know, and speaks, you know, speaks three languages, then as a traveler, when you leave your home, you'll, you'll, you're more likely to be able to see the nuances in the place and really appreciate what the obvious stories are versus what the settler stories are and maybe whose stories aren't being told. And, and it just attunes you to listen. And I think sometimes as travel writers, our most important part is, is as listeners, right? To listen to the mm-hmm. stories that people are telling each other. Yes. And so it's been fun to, and my dad encouraged this and my mom too, to just sort of listen, you know, to see what, there's an obvious conversation in, in our neighborhood, but what's going on on the other side of town? You know, what's going on in this country town? What's going on? in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, and I think that those conversations come through in your episode, but those are things that I look for here and I try to look for as I go to other places. Sure, sure. Just that awareness, you know, that there are conversations happening beyond your own and your own understanding. You know, there's yeah. understanding your own, there's experiences beyond your own. And uh, I just always appreciate, again, this is, this is why we're friends, Rolf, just, you know, to be yeah. able to these things and I just really enjoy hearing you uh, articulate not only the, the that awareness and the different ways that it shows up for you but also again uh, it always goes back to I feel like your upbringing uh, and as someone also who had amazing parents who were educators I just I relate to that so much but uh, Rolf you've got you, you wrote Vagabonding at the dawn of internet travel and digital nomadism and it has still kind of, uh, it, it's still a classic or it's still kind of, it rates highly uh, among the books that people choose when they're thinking of, uh, of kind of cutting the cord, so to speak. Why do you think that is? I, I, I'd like to think it's, a, it's about love in a way, Ernest. Like I wrote it with my heart. I wrote it with my brain, but also my heart because I think I was 28 years old when I started writing that. I'm not 28 years old anymore, Ernest, but... I think I was so grateful. I was so grateful at that age. And I think oftentimes you grow up in a place like Kansas and all you do want to do is get out. 
and you come mm -hmm. to love it in a new way later. But when I was a young person in Kansas, I didn't think I was allowed to travel. I didn't think I had permission. I didn't know that many people with passports. And so by the time I, had, I wrote Vagabonding in Thailand and I had read a lot about travel, I'd experienced a lot about travel, but I was so grateful in my heart. It was a full hearted book. And so what, what I like is I sort of wrote it when I was in my 20s, but I still hear from people in their 20s. I think, you know, I hear from people who are all ages and I love that. But what is great about it is that people who are 23 maybe grow up in a small, small community like me or maybe an urban community where they're not, they don't feel like they have permission to travel. That somehow um, I was at, I, I captured that gratitude that allowed people to give themselves permission. This is, this is why I think it's been successful is that, and then also sort of philosophically, the idea that time is what you own and don't put that stuff off. You know, don't, don't wait till the end of your life to travel. If you really want to travel, just make the time now because time is, time is all, what we're made of. You know, it's what we own. Uh, and so those two, those two things, pa passion and time wealth, I think are the reason why people are still reading that book. Mm, amazing. Well, first of all, thank you for even harnessing though that that love harnessing that awareness and that experience yourself and 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 putting it into a tome that people can then access you know that's definitely part of the work that we're here to do which is to allow people to give themselves permission right um and so to 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 do epic things to do something different than what everyone around them is doing um someone uh, kendra sato says i don't know that i've ever heard rolf say that he didn't think he was allowed to travel or didn't feel like he had permission that is exactly what vagabonding gave me permission and you know did you ever at any point feel like you didn't have permission did you feel like there was something that you had to overcome yes and this is this is i think we have this responsibility ethos in america you know, my mm -hmm. mom sort of grew up poor. I think when, when by the time she had become a school teacher, she thought that, you know, she sort of had these, these instincts that you don't risk what you have. You know, you don't risk your stability by doing things like travel. And God bless my mom. She's a great traveler. But I think I was sort of raised with this idea that, no, you don't have travel is something you put off in your life, you know, that, that do it later, put it off. But um and actually, this is a part of my story that her grand, her father, one of my favorite people in the world, he had an eighth grade education and was the smartest guy I knew. He was my grandfather. Um, by the time he had retired as a farmer, his, his wife had Alzheimer's disease. And it was really heartbreaking for me because it's like if anybody had earned their free time, it was my grandfather who'd been farming since he was 15. Mm -hmm. um, and the woman he loved, going back to love, the woman he loved, he stayed with her, you know, he, that he took care of her late in life. And it, it broke my heart, but it encouraged me it's like, if you want to travel, and I dreamed to travel my whole life, do it now. So I think I was 23. I felt old at age 23. Uh, I kitted out a van and traveled America. Then I traveled to Asia, uh, and it made all the difference. So, so sometimes um, it, it's good to, to think about, if you're putting things off, think about, well, why are you putting things off? And, and is there a way to do it now? And oftentimes young people think, well, I'm going to get my education first. Well, why can't travel be your education? Why not? I mean, how much did you learn in Sweden, for example? And how much did you learn in Brazil? I mean, yeah, um, yeah no, you came and talked to my sister's students and you were throwing out several languages. Uh, and so it's, it's fun to see that was a university setting, but travel can be its own form of education. And I think sometimes people don't trust young people to make good decisions and they think, mm -hmm. oh, they'll just go party. Well, young people are going to party wherever they are. Sure. But and why not? Go ahead. Well, and they should party. Yeah, yeah, because how much Portuguese did you learn while you're having fun in Brazil, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I would say this, you know, I kind of had a similar um, experience with regard to my desire to be out in the world and to and to not have, quote unquote, responsibility in the same way that we're taught we have versus that societally imposed uh, kind of safety, which is what I believe that, that, that that's where people uh, are coming from when they're like, you know, no, you need to be be stable and build. And, and I totally understand that. So it's not even to think that your mom or my dad, for example, or any of the other people who weren't necessarily as open to our travels early on, um, you know, were they weren't wrong. They were just wanting to, that's what they understood as safety and stability. And yeah. uh, I think we've been able to kind of be out in the world and recognize that there are many other ways to do that. And certainly now with technology, as it's advanced since, since we first started, and just the ability to, uh, you know, earn money on the road, which was something that was much more challenging when we were coming along. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, I, I worked as a teacher overseas in Korea for years. And then I've said this before, but when I first wrote Vagabonding, I got a lot of nervous emails because I said, put your travels on your resume. I got a lot of nervous, nervous emails from young people who said, are you sure you should do that? Well, that stopped around 2008. The economy crashed, and suddenly we had these platforms like Skype um, and social media, and suddenly it, did, it no longer seemed weird to be what is now called a digital nomad. It wasn't weird that basically if you have this skill set in this profession and you've been to 13 countries and you speak a second or third language pretty well and you have all these contacts and you know, maybe you're an architect and you've studied Romanian architecture or Paraguayan architecture. Well, then suddenly you can show this stuff off. You, again, it's permission. You, your travels can be a, an important part of your life now. A hundred percent. And it's almost essential these days, you know, and, and I think that's uh, that's the beauty of it. It's gone from being an outline kind of activity to something that does seem to be essential to a well-rounded individual. And, you know, obviously part of our work is to bridge those gaps, to create opportunities for people who may not be aware of that or may not feel like they've got the resources to access that. And so right now you've got, and you've had a series of books ever since Vagabonding. What do we have coming down the pipeline now? Uh, I'm excited about a book. Uh, it's called The Vagabond's Way. And Ernest, I'm such a nerd that I already have, I already have the cover up in my office. So there's <laughs> vagabonding over there. And this is the cover of my new book. Can Beautiful. I giving us vintage travel poster uh, with the uh, Coronado Castle there uh, where we in Kansas, where we filmed. <laughs> right. Well, it's probably too mountainous to be Kansas, but... Oh. It's like I've sold I've sold 300,000 copies of Vagabonding and the picture on Vagabonding is a picture that I took with a $2 camera well, probably a $5 camera in Egypt. Hilarious. And now they they hired like a fancy British artist to design like a vintage style poster for my cover. So it's sort of sort of a coming of age. Um mm. and it's coming out October 4th and it's it's sort of a distillation. It's like a daily reading book. It's 366 chapters, one for each day of a leap year, a little inspirational quote from people all over the world. And then a meditation on that quote. Uh, and so it's so, sort of for people, um, I, I sound like I'm selling it now, but it's sort of a gift book. It's like if somebody's thinking about travel, then every day there's a different meditation on travel that sort of goes from the inspiration and planning phase in January, February through the journey itself. And then December is about coming home and realizing that home is a new destination after you've been elsewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Man, and we've got some comments here. Uh, 
Deanna Laughs, great name, says, yes, I took six years of French in school and I don't remember any of it, but I speak enough Spanish to get by because of my travels. You yeah. And I'm always like, bonjour, parlez-vous anglais? Non? Oh la la. And that's it. Right. That's it of my French. And où est la toilette? Les toilettes. Like, I've been to so many countries and, you know, I, I have a little bit of Korean and a little bit of Arabic, but people are patient. I mean, I think we sort of live in a clickbait world where we're sort of performing for each other. We forget how good other people are at listening and attuning themselves. And being a clumsy American, people people forgive that, you know, that if you just try, if you learn the word yes. for hello and where is the bathroom and things like that. Yes. And people almost anywhere in the world, you wouldn't believe it by looking at social media where people are just yelling at each other. But uh, you go to these parts of the world and people take interest and it's it's so great. And, and um, much like we were talking about listening to your own home and sort of the conversations that you're not attuned to, attuning yourself to all the conversations of your home. That's another way too. One thing, great thing that travel teaches you that you won't learn on social media is that people are super helpful and super people are super patient and they will forgive you your mistakes. And this is part of language learning. You have to make a lot of mistakes before you're good at, a, at another language. Uh, and it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to do it, which is why vagabonding is all about permission. Just like go out there, be a fool if you need to be, but just experience that world because it's friendlier and more open hearted than you would ever read about um, secondhand. Mm, I love it. I, oh, my gosh. Just yes. Take the leap. Go swimming out in the world and be open and vulnerable and let people show you just how loving they can be. Obviously, when you, when you can try to learn how to say please and thank you and, uh, and, and good morning. And those things go such a long way uh, to having people engage with you as a human being and as someone who wants the same things that they want in life, to feel seen, empowered, and loved. Uh, and so, you know, I think you have embodied that and you also imbue your writing with that. And so what are some of the, uh, how did you come up with The Vagabond's Way? Like what, what were the inspirations and what are some of your favorite bits from the book? Well, it, it's sort of, uh, the ethos is really connected to vagabonding. Um, but I am a compulsive note taker. Uh, and this is what, uh, actually in the Renaissance, it was called the commonplace book before there was the internet before, before people owned many books. Like I, I obviously own many books, but before that was a thing, before there was, uh, an ability for people that they would own maybe a Bible and maybe some Shakespeare. And maybe if you were really, you know, had a lot of economic resources, you had access to maybe 10 more books. Well, a commonplace book is where you kept all your quotes and your thoughts because maybe you didn't have a hundred books, but you could read a hundred books and keep all of your quotes in one place. Well, thanks to the computer age, I've been doing that almost by accident. I didn't know what a commonplace book was until about 10 years ago. I've been saving these quotes and these thoughts about travel and those informed vagabonding. But then I realized, uh, I read a book called The Daily Stoic by, by Ryan Holiday. Uh, which is sort of a, a daily reading of Stoicism and then a reflection on Stoicism. And mm -hmm. I realized that you could do a travel equivalent of this. Not only could you do it, but I actually had enough, I had enough quotes and thoughts and notes to myself to write two of these books. And so okay. um, I went back to my original publisher, Random House. They, they loved the idea. Um, sometimes books are easier said than done, but I put in the work. And my God bless my wife. She was very patient in our first year of marriage. I was working 12 hours a day writing my new book. Um, but I'm really happy with it. And, and so uh, the ethos is still there, that time wealth ethos, the give yourself permission, the travel is connected to your whole life. It's not just a consumer act that you buy, but it's something you give to yourself. That ethos is also in the vagabond's way. 
but it goes a little deeper. You know, I wrote I wrote vagabonding in a room in Thailand, and I didn't have a I didn't have a bunch of quotes. That there, Wikipedia wasn't really that common yet. Sure. This has a rich, rich uh, arrangement of quotes, not just American authors, but African authors, South American authors, European authors from all parts of the continent, Chinese, Japanese, Korean authors. That basically it shows just by quoting these people that the human race globally has been inter- it has been fascinated by travel as an act and travel as an act of of self definition and and self expression forever that it's not just middle class american people but it's egyptians 3000 years ago or japanese people 5000 years or 500 years ago were doing very similar they're going through the, a very similar human experience uh, by the act of travel so in a way i'm collecting all these voices from all over history to create this little reading to get to basically give everybody permission and get everybody excited about travel, but also to think ethically about travel. If you pull out your camera in a place you've only been for five minutes, do you start taking pictures of people before you learn their names? You know that there's it's not all ethical, but there's a and, and you can appreciate that there's always an ethical aspect to travel that you are a guest. You're not just this person checking things off a list, but you're a guest in other people's home and other people's culture. And unless you listen. Uh, before you start taking pictures and, and posting on Instagram, sorry, Instagram, that that um, you'll be missing out on the key gift of travel, which is is really that ability to listen in places that are not your own. A hundred percent. You know, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly that it's hard to be listening when you're trying to capture and then, you know, pr- uh, I don't want to even say promote, but to, to social media, everything, you know, yeah. and... Yes, I get it. That's what we're doing now. But the main the, the, the main thing is we're missing out because we're not listening first. All we're doing is just kind of uh, replicating something in a way that is automated and not really allowing us to go deep and make those connections. And, and not to knock, uh, you know, smartphones or technology or the way younger generations travel. But I think we need to sometimes we look around and, and we try to see the diversity within the world we have now. Well, there's also historical diversity. There's wisdom that came from Basho who traveled Japan hundreds of years ago. There's wisdom from Winneman who traveled Egypt poorly. He was a bad traveler, but he learned a lot of lessons 3000 years ago. And so if you can see, sort of see the humanity in the different people who traveled the world at different times, and then then practice that listening muscle, which is so hard and, and um, which is, it's not so hard, it's actually easy, but sometimes it's, it's, it's also easy to just sort of assume that what you what your expectations of a place are what you're finding in a place and i think until you're having a conversation and realizing wait a second this this guy in in azerbaijan is a miami heat fan what he knows more about miami heat than me then suddenly you're seeing things in different way uh and i quote this in in the new book uh that um when when malcolm x went on his hajj to saudi arabia everybody wanted to talk about muhammad ali everybody wanted to talk about cassius clay because they saw an American in him, but the, the American they were most proud of was Muhammad Ali in, in Saudi Arabia. And so it's funny that popular culture is sometimes what you find, you know, that Malcolm mm-hmm. X went to on a religious pilgrimage, and then all of a sudden these sincere Muslims just wanted to talk about boxing, right? Well, that's yes. the thing that happens. And I'm sure you found it in Sweden and, and, uh, and uh, in Brazil and other parts of the world that you've come to know and love. But sometimes the lens through which we understand each other or we, we love each other, like 
K-pop music, right? Or, mm. you know, if you love rugby or, or, or you sports or arts or whatever, sometimes that is the first step of love for a place we don't understand yet. As you know, I want, I'd like to travel Kenya with you. I'd like to do a Fly Brother episode of Kenya with you. When I was a kid, Kenya for me was the best runners in the world. I was a runner. And I thought when I was 12, I wanted to be as good as a Kenyan runner. And so my first nugget of love for Kenya was about sports, right? I think that's good. And then you go to a place and you realize that maybe you, maybe you go to Kenya wanting to learn about running and then suddenly they're into something that, you know, they're into anime or whatever, you know. And so sure. that's the great thing about traveling the world these days. What are some of your favorite places in the world, Rolf Potts? Besides well, Kansas. You know, one of them is Kansas. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I always like to represent Kansas because yes. the, Kansas doesn't always feel the love that I have for it. And it's not an obvious place on people's itineraries, but it's it's my home. And, I, and I've showed it to you a couple of times now, and I'm very proud of it. But I'm also fond of Paris, where I'm headed uh, to teach my writing classes uh, in a month. Uh, I'm really fond of Korea. I lived for, there for a couple of years, and I think sometimes we project things on other countries what was great about Korea for me is that it was, it's, a, it's as workaholic or worse than the United States, that I worked hard in Korea, and the Koreans worked harder than me. But I came to love the place. Like, Korean food is my comfort food, because when I was feeling bad and overworked in Korea, I would, I would, I would console myself in food. And so this day, and my wife knows it, she cooks great Korean food now, uh, that's, that um, food can be a window into culture on a down day. My new book, there's a ton of Namibia in there, and I know you've done a Namibia episode. And I think just because Namibia dazzled me, it's one of the last places I went. Namibia and Sumatra both dazzled me a couple of years before my new book. And you can't write with your heart without the places that you're excited about, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of Namibia. They're, they're two strange destinations. They're also a little bit under radar, but Sumatra just dazzled me and it's dirt cheap. And Namibia just, it just kept on giving. Namibia is so beautiful and so surprising in ways. Uh, so as you know, Ernest, you know, when you get asked the question, what's your favorite place? It's a trick question because pretty soon it's two hours later and you're still talking and you're on your 30th country. Um, but yeah, all those places I just mentioned are very, are very, they're either close to my heart or they're places that have really made me, have really captured my imagination in recent years. No, and, and, and I think it's a blessing to have so many different places that it is hard to choose. Uh, and, you know, obviously there are different aspects and elements of that. It's the people in one place. It's the food in another. It's, some, you know, it's a combination of all those things. Uh, I have had the, the, the wonderful honor and privilege to be able to eat Korean food in Korea. And it is one of the most underrated cuisines um, on the planet. Uh, so, yeah, if y'all ever get a chance to get their audience or go to a Korean restaurant in your hometown, because that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, it's so good. My funeral banquet will have Korean food, I hope, just because it's so, it's special. Well, there's barbecue, maybe Korean, Kansas barbecue and Korean barbecue. That actually sounds really good, Rolf. Yeah, I hope no. you have that before, way before your actual funeral. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, food is such a great window into a place. I'm not even a foodie. My wife is, but mm -hmm. food, just as if in doubt, ask, ask a local pe person where they eat. I, I write about this in the new book. Don't ask them where you should eat because they'll send you like the, the, the pizza place where all the backpackers go. Say, well, right. where do you eat? What's a good place for you to eat? And then if they tell you their favorite restaurant, 99 times out of 100, it'll blow your mind. It's just great neighborhood food wherever in the world you are. One of the things that I missed out on when we were there to film was Kansas City Barbecue. Yeah. Tell us more about KC Barbecue. <laughs> 
Well, you have to realize, and, and this is a matter of distinction, I'm sure Missourians will take issue with me, but Kansas City is on both sides of the, of the border. There's actually a line called State Line Road where you can sort of change lanes and be another state. And so Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri both have fantastic barbecue. Probably the best beef barbecue in America. I know a lot of people, you know, in, in Texas and North Carolina are getting mad at me, but uh, it's fantastic. And I think you're cheating yourself if you just stay on the Missouri side of Kansas City. There's great barbecue there. There's some classic barbecue there. But there's also, um, I, I think we tried to get you a filming location. There's a, there's the, I think the Jones sisters, there's a, a, a pair of African-American sisters who own one of the most famous barbecue joints on the Kansas side of the Kansas City. And uh, we tried to film there and it didn't quite work out. But um, I realize not everybody eats meat, but if you do eat meat, it's such like going to five different barbecue places in Kansas City is like experiencing five different aspects of Kansas City. Mm. That there's a lot of black barbecue geniuses there, but there's some white barbecue geniuses there too. Like people trace their ancestors from Italy and from Africa, and they both make great barbecue, in part mm. because they've learned from each other and they've been trying to one-up one, one each other for, for 50 years, right? Well, what are some of the other, uh, let's say, um, stalwarts of Kansan cuisine that we should engage in when we visit? Well, here's one. If you go to Wichita, look for Vietnamese cuisine mm. because there's been a strong Vietnamese community um, since the 1970s, 1980s, and they've been knocking it out of the park with food um, okay. since that time. They've been featured in the New York Times. Wichita Vietnamese restaurants um, are fantastic down there. And that's just one example. I think that's a, that's a good shorthand that any immigrant community who's making food in a little hole in the wall, odds are that that's going to be really great food. Sure. North End Wichita is a great place for Mexican food. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure, but I know that there's a big Somali community out west in the meatpacking plants in Dodge City. I bet there's good Somali food out there, too. And then actually uh, Swedish food. You can get Swedish meatballs just up the road. Uh, they have a festival and you can get what's called Viking on a stick. It's like a corn dog, but it's a Swedish meatball down in Lindsberg, Kansas. Okay. Um, yeah, so Fun. it's... it's uh, I think your curiosity is your friend in a place like this, because even in this, it's not Brooklyn, there's not a lot of locavore restaurants, but because it's an agricultural state, the odds that if it's not an Outback Steakhouse, that your food, like if it's just a locally owned place, odds are they're sourcing their meat and vegetables from right here in Kansas, where they raise a lot of agricultural products. And so just following your curiosity instead of um, a guidebook or a top 10 list can really this, this goes in place anywhere in the world, but Kansas is a place that grows a lot of food, is a place where that's great advice. Just see what's interesting. It's like Laotian food, really? In Newton, Kansas? Let's see what's there. And so pretty soon you're having, you're having an amazing meal there. I mean, it makes sense because obviously if that food is available there, then probably there's a community there of people who are eating that food and it's authentic, you know, because it is of the community. So be adventurous. That is one of your main, and curious uh, was the word that you used. What else should we encourage our audience to experience uh, when coming to Kansas? Well, there's that old cliche, get off the beaten path. Uh, small highways and dirt roads have rewards. Um, and actually, um, in a little small town, remember there's 200 people, they've seen everybody in town. And then so if you're walking through town and you're asking where, a good, where good food is, not only uh, will they help you, but you're the most interesting thing that's happened this week. You know, you're out of town or in this small little town. Um, and so 
give yourself, and this is, a, this is another part of the vagabonding ethos, give yourself time to take your time and to just mm. be curious. And sure, maybe you watch the Fly Brother episode and you go to KCK and you go to maybe Lindsborg and Wichita, but go to some small towns outlying as well. Um, some are going to be nicer than others. You know, sometimes it's going to be just a, 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 a um, this happens anywhere, but just a town that's just sort of junky and not very nice. But sometimes you'll be, you'll come and it's like, I've never met nicer people. I mean, it's like being going anywhere in the world. You go to a, you go to the big city and you have fun. You go to a small village and suddenly you're having all this conversation. You're getting invited for meals and stuff like that. So same holds in a true in a place like Kansas. Just go off the main highway and see what's there and go to the antique store and go to the local soda diner and see what's there. And odds are something memorable will happen. Um, someone just reposted, give yourself time to take your time, which I think is, you know, essential for life. But Rolf, you know, so we, we traveled to central Kansas. We traveled to Wichita. We traveled to Kansas City. Um, as a person of color, I know you can't speak to this personal, you know, from your personal experience. But for me, I was a bit trepidatious to mm. leave the interstate to go off the beaten path. I think we know that there has been a fraught history with people of color out in certain spaces with uh, queer people who, uh, you know, may not necessarily be able to fit in, who may not be able to pass, uh, you know, what advice do you have for people who are coming from experiences, not your own, but who are interested in discovering more of your home space? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I, that is less visceral for me, you know, that I, I have not had that, the experience of coming here in that situation. I think that there, I mean, and this is the reason why cities are such a haven for people is that you can be anonymous. You can, the population density is such that you can find people that you share commonalities with sure. in that way, you know. Safety in number. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think there's something, uh, I tell people this, it's sort of a cowboy metaphor, ride tall in the saddle, that some, and actually you did this, Ernest, you did this, you, you came to Lindsborg, Kansas, you, you spoke to my, my sister's students, and actually the, a lot of them were students of color, they're athletes who, who have come um, to play sports in central Kansas, and you just started talking, and you just threw out, I'm a gay man, and all these sort of Broy jocks, it didn't even phase him. And that could be a generational thing, but it's also, you didn't apologize for being you. You just mm. said, this is who I am. And this is what I'm telling you. And I'm someone who has something to share. I speak Portuguese, I've been around the world. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the guys in that class look like you, you know, that they're Latino or, or African-American men who'd come to Kansas to play sports. And suddenly there's this guy who is from Florida and, and can speak more than one language and is telling them something exciting. And so that's, that's my ride tall in the saddle analogy, that you didn't, you didn't um, tiptoe around any aspect of who you were. And I think that's respected uh, almost everywhere you go. Now, because of the historical era we live in there, there and because some regressive people will go on social media and, and think that, they, that their stereotypes about other people are true, I mean, it's, it's good to be careful. It's, not, it's good to be careful anywhere you go, but I think... It's like going to another country where maybe you go, I know in, in recent decades, going to Arab lands makes Americans nervous, not realizing that Arabs are like the, the friendliest, most hospitable, mm. most open-hearted people in the world. Mm. My apologies to everybody who's not Arab, but really there's a big thing there. And it's a similar thing that there are some 
some small-minded people in rural parts of America, and it's good to be cognizant of that. But if you if you unapologetically and and un and take an interest, you know, I think sometimes the um, the unconstructive urban um, attitude is to sort of think, well, I'm is to be defensive to come to a place and and sort of be, well, I'm I'm a gay black man. What do you make of that? But just to say, hey. How, what, what, what is there to eat around here? Yeah, no, I'm from, I'm from this community and my husband's name is this or whatever. That really being confident and friendly, it's actually, it's advice that applies to anywhere in the world. Is sure. this just, just being, um, you know, owning who you are. I mean, have you, been, have you been to other countries, Ernest, where you feel like you should disguise any parts of your identity just to, to, um, to blend in or pass or um, code switching as a thing? I'm, I'm curious about this. Yes, and that's a conversation that we could, that that's longer than what we have here. But I would say, uh, I, you know, yes, there have been times when I felt like I had to uh, either not speak about my sexuality or uh, not even mention that I might be from the U.S. I would throw on an mm. accent to, uh, mm. to to be from some other place, um, and you know, maybe that was overprotected. You know, being overprotected. Uh, obviously, there are places that I do go to where you know my skin color um, has puts people at uh, dis ease. Mm. Uh, you know, that is their dis ease, by the way. So I, right. I recognize. I think you know what you're getting at is the riding tall in the saddle. We all should be riding tall in our own saddles. Yeah. You know, there are times when we may have to engage in a way that isn't um, pleasant. But I will say this as someone who has been to as many places as I've been to. There's always been much more. It's, it's a net gain for me to be out in places where I wouldn't necessarily expect to be welcomed. And that is giving people the opportunity to be loving, to show up, to show that they are welcoming and that not everybody uh, is as small minded as uh, someone who just mentioned, like I'm from New York City. L.A. and Nashville now, and there are small-minded people everywhere. So very true. Uh, and I had not experienced small-mindedness in Kansas, by the way. I just want to put that out there. Yeah, I'm a straight white dude from the middle of the country. There's, there's certain questions that don't come into my head when I go to a place, even overseas. You know, as, as a white American, sometimes you're given a free pass because it's like, oh, yeah, I watched the movies, for example. Of course, now there's sure. more diversity in movies. And so um, Americans in general can represent sort of the, the pop culture version of what people see. But, uh, but absolutely, that's a good thing to keep in mind. And I think that's why, import, that's why it's important that there's shows like Fly, Fly Brother, because you're not only bringing, you're not only listening to other places, but you're bringing your own perspective and your own experiences to places that might be different from mine, right? Sure. And, and what I love about your show, and, and sorry to be bragging about your show on this, but uh, in, in a clickbait age, um, it's about friendship and connection and open heartedness. And I, and there's no, there's no like button for that. Sometimes there's people, mm -hmm. people engage with what makes them angry, but not about what, what opens their heart and makes them reconsider or even encourages them to take risks or make, make mistakes sometimes. And to realize that people are just a lot more engaging and open hearted and curious than sometimes we give each other credit for. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Ernest White the Second's TV show Fly Brother and the Fly Brother membership community, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>